Today we are talking with professional runner and Stanford alum Vanessa Frazier. Vanessa graduated from Stanford in 2018 as a 10-time All-American and school record holder in the 5,000 meter. Along with many athletic successes, she has also undergone a very difficult surgery on both of her Achilles tendons and is now coming back stronger than ever. Vanessa is an amazing part of the voice and sport community as a Viz League mentor, where she leads discussions on injury, recovery, and dealing with disappointing athletic performances. Today, Vanessa speaks about why she chose Stanford. Seeing Stanford athletes on TV at a young age really made me want to become that. The connections between startups and professional sports. I think having the understanding as an athlete of what it feels like to have a big dream and a vision and then getting to be a tiny part in someone else's dream, knowing what that felt like was really fulfilling and really exciting. And how to recover from injury by making bite-sized goals. If I had been too eager to achieve those things on day one, I would have lost sight of all the small steps that needed to happen in the process and in the interim. Before we get started, if you'd like to support this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Vanessa, welcome to the Voice and Sport Podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to start with just your career and how you started in running way back when you were eight years old. So, you know, a lot of times athletes that come on the podcast do multiple sports or, you know, it's always so interesting just to know like the background and how you got started. So when can you remember your very first time going out on a run? So formally, I started with Girls on the Run in third grade at age eight, like you mentioned. But I think I remember, you know, in kindergarten, sometimes our class would go out and run a lap and I'd run around with my friends at recess. I was really into horses. So that was another sport that I did growing up was horseback riding. But we would pretend to be horses and use our whole recess running around pretending to be horses. So a lot of like fun, kind of playful memories of getting into running and then you know, formally with Girls on the Run, it the program prepares you to run a 5K at the end of a 10-week session. So that was my first experience with like an organized formal running event. But I really kind of dabbled in a lot of different sports and found out that I wasn't very oriented toward ball sports. I think I got in my like soccer club, I got the dainty runner award because I would run around the field with my hands out to the side. You Amazing. Know, I, I just, yeah, I I had the running part down, but I, I didn't really want to have any ball contact, I don't think. So yeah, but I, I did horseback riding, gymnastics, a little bit of tennis, skiing. So yeah, dabbled around with a lot of different activities. I love it. Well, the program that you started with Girls on the Run is a great program. They have a really cool mission to keep girls or really to get girls into the sport at that like early, early age and then help build their confidence and doing it through like a side, like an achievable goal with the 5K at the end of of the course. So I think it's a really great program. You went on to actually coach for Girls on the Run in high school. So what lessons did you did you teach, you know, do you remember what you taught those young girls and 
at that critical age when they're so young and just starting sport? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I just learned so much through the program myself. So in becoming a coach, you know, later when I was in high school, I really just wanted to impart those lessons on younger girls because of how much value it had provided me. And there's kind of two sides of it. There's the running and sports side of it, where you really learn the power of goal setting and you learn that working hard for something is fun and, you know, and kind of addicting to track your progress over the course of not only weeks or months, but then coming back the next year and, and seeing if you can keep improving on what you did the previous year. So that whole kind of addiction to the process and getting better, but seeing it as a really fun thing and seeing running as a really fun thing and a, you know, fun sort of light, healthy competition as well. But then there's the other side too, where they, the program teaches all these different, both physical and emotional health lessons. And some of the lessons were really impactful before going into middle school, like literally learning how to stand up for yourself and how to properly approach conflict resolution and how to think positively and confidently about yourself and building your self-esteem and all of those things, which, you know, kind of are fostered through sport already, but then having these real objective lessons about it and practicing through activities with other young girls it's, it's really impactful. So I just wanted to share that with the younger community and found it really rewarding to give back to the program that had given so much to me when I was younger. I love that. Well, and you hit on something that's pretty near and dear to our heart at Voice and Sport, which is building confidence. So, you know, you, how do you think after all your years now, you know, you've been starting in the program when you're really young, all the way up to Stanford, then pro to where you are now, how has confidence like played a role throughout your whole career? And how do you build it as a young women athlete? I think I have, as I've gotten older through sport, I have a lot to learn from the girls on the run program itself. And I have a lot to learn from my younger self. I always say this, like a lot of people ask, you know, what advice would you give your younger self? And I actually think my younger self has a lot of advice to give my older self. And as I've kind of gone up in the ranks with running and the stakes have gotten higher, I've needed to learn those lessons more and more on how to find confidence because in college, but especially as a pro too, again, as the bar just keeps getting higher, you tend to look for confidence more and more in your achievements and in girls on the run and in my younger years of running, but especially in girls on the run, that's, that's not how you foster confidence. And that's not how it's really taught. It's more about, you know, traits within yourself that are not dependent on what you achieve on the track or what your result is in a race. It's really about, you know, what kind of teammate you are, how you talk to yourself in a positive way. And it turns out if you're a really supportive friend and teammate, and if you are, you know, noticing things about yourself that you love that have to do with how you approach things like, wow, you know, I worked really hard today 
that was awesome. Or I had this big setback and I bounced back the next day. And I, that showed a lot of resilience. That's kind of how you foster confidence in general, but that was the focus, you know, girls on the run. And so it's something that I really try to remember as a pro when it's so easy to find confidence from winning races or reaching a certain level in the sport. And the reality is, is like, those achievements are never ending. And there's like always the next thing that you're going to keep seeking. And so if you're seeking, you know, external things to give you confidence, it's, it's kind of a never ending loop. And, and so again, just going back to what I learned back in girls on the run is, you know, it's, it's finding it with your within yourself, no matter how you're performing. I love that. I also love that you shine light on like, we can learn so much from our younger selves, <laughs> you know, yeah. even with what we're doing at Voice and Sport with our advocacy program is like, we're, we're leading with the young girls at the center because there's so much that like policymakers can learn from the experiences that these girls are having today. So I think it's so important. And you also touched on something too, that I feel like as later in life athletes we go back to, which is finding the fun again and finding the joy, because you mentioned it, you started playing basically horseback riding, <laughs> running around, chasing each other in, in school. And then it was fun, right? Like sport was fun. It was enjoyable, mm -hmm. but often we lose that joy. And so I'm just wondering in your own career, how did you get yourself back to like finding that joy? If you found yourself in a place where you're like, it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah, you know, it, it's a continuous battle. It's so interesting. I've thought about this a lot in the last few years as a pro and had a lot of conversations with my teammate, Elise Cranny, who's obviously a, a big member of the Viz community. And when you are a professional runner, it's what you're you know, your whole world is centered around. You're not in school anymore. So you don't have, you know, different things in academics to distract you, which is great because it means you can, you know, really try to see how good you can be by pouring all your energy into this one thing. But, you know, when that's your whole focus, again, going back to like, how results can sometimes feel like that dictates your confidence. I also think that that can sometimes dictate your joy. And if you just aren't thinking about it, aren't putting any effort into it, I would say naturally what happens is if you are doing really well and crushing it and, you know, achieving your goals or coming close to your goals and having some form of success on a regular basis, it's easy to feel joyful. It's so easy to to feel like this is so much fun because naturally like doing well and winning is fun, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, when things are conversely not going well, then it's really hard to, to feel joyful again, especially when it's your whole world and you just don't naturally have a lot of outlets to lean on or to necessarily garner joy from if you're not actively trying so, I mean, I think it's hard. I think that that's sort of, again, like the natural tendency to happen as a pro. And, you know, that can happen at any level too, even in high school and college. Although I think personally for me, it was easier because I always enjoyed pouring myself into other things. 
and remembering that, you know, at the end of the day, it's just running and that helped me have balance and perspective and then in turn have more joy with running. So I think it's it's having the perspective that there's a bigger world outside of sport and that as much as it feels like it really matters in the moment, it it, it kind of doesn't and that you are doing it you know, hopefully for fun at the end of the day. So I guess having that perspective and then just really focusing on interim goals and interim progress and kind of creating a reward system for yourself. And this is something I've talked about with injury recovery, because that's a really easy example of like when you're kind of down and out and things aren't going well, and you're obviously not able to compete and you're not able to find joy through success. And it's, it's kind of like tricking your neurochemistry into having these little hits of dopamine because like a lot of rewards are kind of external and you have to create internal rewards for yourself. And if you create these internal rewards and your own kind of metrics of success, which could be as simple as, again, talking about my injury recovery, which I'm sure we'll get into more, you know, my goal for tomorrow is to simply walk 10 steps you know, I'm in two walking boots, and I just want to walk 10 steps. And to really make that an intentional goal, and to really celebrate that goal, you actually are literally having a neurochemical benefit in your brain, the joy is coming from your brain. So sometimes it's just like tricking your own psychology. And it's not even a trick. It's realizing, again, that a lot of things that we think are going to create joy are coming from external sources telling us that winning or achieving this one thing is going to bring you happiness and it's not so or it might temporarily but obviously there's other ways to create joy and you have to find a way to do that for yourself thank you for listening to the voice and sport podcast my name is zasha bolhawk and i am the producer of this voice and sport podcast episode i run track and cross country at the university of houston I love working with Voice in Sport in order to empower young girls and women in sports, and I would love it if you would join us in trying to make a change. Go follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Voice in Sport for more amazing content. You can also sign up for free and join our community of female athletes at voiceinsport.com for mentorship, sports content, and inspiration. Thanks. Absolutely. I think it's so important. I mean, what you talked about is also really related to back to confidence too. And like, you know, don't look to other people to find your confidence. That's like kind of the detriment of social media, right? That we just have to be really careful Mm of. Don't look to those outside resources to give you what you need internally. I don't know if you ever struggled with body confidence, but that's also one of the things we're trying to talk about at Voice and Sport a lot is like, Try not to compare yourself to other people. It can be really hard to do when you're a competitive person and your mindset of competition on the track. You don't want to take mm-hmm. that off the track and compare yourself to others, but it can be hard. So did you have any challenges yourself early on in younger years in that? And what advice would you have to the girls today that might be faced with some of those challenges? You know, I was pretty fortunate that I didn't struggle significantly with that. I did have a diagnosis of red S when I was a freshman in high school. I was, you know, grew straight up 
and not out at all. And I was pretty underweight and kind of undereducated about fueling needs, not only as an athlete, but as a young athlete, you know, age 14 to 15, where my body's really growing and has increasing demands on top of, you know, becoming a high school athlete and training harder and running more. So I would attribute it more to kind of like under education, but I ended up having to sit out my entire freshman high school track season in order to gain enough weight to be at a healthy body mass index. And I'm super fortunate and lucky that I had doctors that kind of intervened and recognized that because again, I just wasn't educated and my parents weren't educated and I'm genetically thin. So there wasn't awareness. And I feel like nowadays, hopefully there is more awareness and attention on how important getting on top of your health at that age, as far as like nutrition and fueling and being at a healthy weight, I think it's come a long way. But I think whether it's struggling with body positivity or any other sort of comparison or confidence, like it does all come down to the same thing, which is recognizing that everybody is super unique and different and everybody needs really different things. And you have to like learn how to be the best version of yourself, which could look very different than someone else. And also knowing that, that what you see on social media is not real. So (laughs) that's a whole, a whole nother topic, of course, but I, I know that that just, that just adds fuel to the fire of comparison and maybe struggling with body confidence or any type of confidence. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think this is a this is a topic that unfortunately isn't talked about enough, which is why at Voice and Sport we have sessions on Red S. We also have the podcast with Elise Craney, where she talked about her experience with Red S. And it's mm-hmm. really common for young women, especially runners. So when you when you think back to those years where you did have the signals in high school, what were some of the signals that you recognized or your doctors or parents recognized? as potential problems that you were maybe underfueling? Well, I physically did look very, very thin and just the numbers showed, you know, my BMI was extremely low, my weight to height ratio. And I think I had a really low heart rate, which, you know, with all these different like tracking devices these days and the different ideas of health metrics. I think that that can maybe be a trap for young athletes thinking that like a super low heart rate is really healthy and good. And it means you're fit. And, you know, my resting heart rate now is not as low as it was when I was 13. And I'm obviously a lot more of a capable and strong athlete. And so actually, I think that was one of the biggest signals for them was that my resting heart rate was pretty low. I know there's there's a lot of different signals. Like I hadn't started menstruating yet, so I didn't have that as, you know, something to gauge off of. But once I did, I had I've had a regular period pretty much my whole adult life, except for maybe like skipping one or two months. So once that started, obviously that has been a one really helpful, useful metric. And I would say Now, I have a lot of metrics that I use to make sure I'm feeling enough. Even if I am getting a regular period, sometimes I struggle with just 
a naturally super fast metabolism. And again, here's a great example of everybody being so different. And I'm living at altitude camp with other high level athletes, and we all have very different fueling needs. So if I'm eating exactly the same that another athlete is, that might not be the right amount for me, or the right thing for me. So again, being really aware of my signals, like just feeling extra fatigued, or sometimes even the ironic effect that happens is like your appetite starts to get a little bit suppressed if you're under fueling. So if I kind of feel myself getting like tired during a meal or kind of wanting to stop eating, it's not out of fullness. It's because like, oh, I might be in a little bit of an under fueling hole. So things like that, that I've really like developed an awareness of over the years as well has been helpful as, as well as obviously like getting that regular period is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and thank you for sharing that because I I think it's important to your story and your journey because you ended up going to Stanford and walking on there and then becoming a 10-time All-American. But if we just back up to your high school experience, you sat out your freshman and sophomore year. So I think it is really important for young girls to hear that. Like you took care of yourself and your body and that actually enabled you to have this like incredible career later. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that transition because, you know, first of all, why did you decide to go to Stanford and walk on when you probably could have gone some other places? Let's talk about that. And and then I really want to dive deep into that experience of walking on to, to a really incredible program. I'm sure it was a tough decision to go there, but maybe bring us back to those you know, junior year in high school, when you finished Mm -hmm. recovering from Red S and you started thinking about, okay, what do I want to do in college? Mm -hmm. So, well, first of all, I only had to sit out my freshman track season. So I was back by sophomore year. I just want to clarify that. But I had a dream to go to Stanford from a very young age, probably around when I started running in Girls on the Run at age eight. And part of that was I grew up 45 minutes away from Stanford. And I had an older cousin who played football there in the late 90s. So I grew up going to football games at Stanford. And my dad went to Stanford and was a big Stanford sports fan. So there would always be Stanford football, basketball, volleyball, all the games going on on TV as a kid. So I think I sort of got enamored by, you know, Stanford is an amazing place, but who knows wherever I may have grown up, if that's what I'd been exposed to, then that would have been the school that I would have become obsessed with, which I think leads into an interesting point, like media representation and the things you see as a kid have a huge impact. And then we could get into a whole topic of of seeing women's sports on TV, but The point is seeing Stanford athletes on TV at a young age really made me want to become that. And I thought that looks so cool. Um, Obviously, I hadn't really put the pieces together of like maybe becoming a runner there. I was still exploring other sports. But by the time I got to middle school, I went to a Stanford cross country camp and they had real live Stanford athletes there as the counselors. And Then that really became like, I looked up to them so much. I want to be that so bad one day. So going into high school, even I knew I want to go to Stanford and I want to run at Stanford one day. 
And I also want to, you know, put an asterisk on the word walk on. I was technically a preferred walk on, which means I did get kind of like help with my application. So I had a pink slip on my application. So that meant that that I was going to have a spot on the team and that they were interested in me, but I wasn't going to get any scholarship money and I didn't get actively recruited by them. So when I was a junior in high school, I reached out to the Stanford coach at the time and kind of made a sales pitch for myself and, and said that I was really interested in joining the team. And at that point I hadn't really done anything yet to prove that I could be on the team, but I did end up winning a state title my junior year in cross country division for state of California. And I think that at least put me in the conversation of being on the team, but the caliber of athletes that Stanford was recruiting were so high, like, you know, ranked nationally caliber athletes. And I was good, but definitely not that like five-star national caliber. So again, just want to put that caveat that I was, you know, semi-recruited, but it meant preferred walk-on means zero scholarship money. And I did, you know, have offers to go to other schools on scholarship money. But for me, I had this vision of going to Stanford and I'm super happy that it worked out. I think that was the first, you know, real experience on a large scale in my life of like, oh, I had this vision for myself for 10 years pretty much. And I saw it come to fruition and that's an amazing thing. But I also think that... It's so interesting because for a while I had this idea that like if you do have a vision like that for yourself for such a long time, like you can speak it into existence, you can manifest it. If you, you know, put your mind to whatever it is, you can achieve it. And that is sometimes true. And I and I had that experience with with making that reality of going to Stanford. But I also have later in my career experienced like having a big goal and a vision and it not coming to fruition. And I always wonder like, you know, what if they hadn't wanted me on the team? What if I hadn't gotten in? You know, I would have been so disappointed and I maybe would have learned that lesson sooner. But I think my point is, is like, that was an amazing experience. And I'm so glad it worked out, but that wasn't the only path to having success. And that wasn't the only good outcome. And if it hadn't worked out, I'm sure I would have been happy somewhere else too. And, and yeah, my point is just that (laughs) I don't necessarily think it's healthy to have these narratives put out there all the time that like, if you have this big dream, you can make it a reality. And I think it's important to have a big dream. But it's also important to realize like, sometimes it doesn't work out. So I don't want my story to be like this, you know, this hallmark picture of manifesting where you want to go to college and that's the only way to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you're making a great point because obviously we want all girls to be dreaming big about their goals, both in sport and out of sport, but it's okay to realize that like the journey to get there might actually take you on another course to another goal, or you Mm -hmm. might end up achieving your goal, but like in a completely different way. Right. And you really only get that sort of perspective once you've been in it for a lot longer. 
And, you know, to your point, like you had this 10 year run of like thinking about going to Stanford and then you emailed the coach and then you, you went anyway and gave up scholarships other places and you got there. I guess I'm just kind of curious, like when you got there in that moment, when you're like stepping on to, you know, your first practice with the team, definitely an underdog kind of moment. What was that like? It was not a letdown at all. It was amazing. I was honestly, well, I was there for five years, but even up through the fifth year, I would walk around pinching myself. I would, there would be moments on the track where I'd be working out with the team, just being like so grateful and, you know, really feeling like I was living out my dream. So that was really special. And I think, yeah, kind of being that underdog was a huge blessing for me because I wouldn't say I ever had a mentality of like, oh, I'm I'm just happy to be here, right? Like, I'm just happy to be on the team. Like, I've made it, right? But it was the perfect balance of like, I'm so happy to be here. And now that I'm here, there are more doors open and there's more, you know, now I have this amazing opportunity to see how good I can be as a collegiate athlete. And now that I'm a pro, I've realized what a special balance that is. Like, I think that is the sweet spot to be in as an athlete where you're really excited to be in the position that you're in, but also really hungry to see what you can do now that you've been given this opportunity. And and that's part of the appeal of of joining a really successful team. Like that was part of the reason why I wanted to join Bowerman was kind of that feeling at Stanford where I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm here and look at these people around me. And, you know, I want to be like them one day. And I think that that, yeah, it just propelled me to kind of continue to be grateful, but also continue to push and, and see where I could go you know, throughout those five years. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such an insightful comment for anybody, regardless of where they're at in their journey to having that balance. It's like, you want to be confident, but you don't want to be like over cocky. You know, you want to have like that (laughs) swagger, but not too much. So I think that's a really great, a really great comment. And when you were there at Stanford for your five years, looking back now, you know, our Viz community is made up of high school and college athletes. They're living it right now, right? Division one, division Mm -hmm. three, all of the different divisions. What advice would you have for for the girls that are in it today that maybe now that you're looking back as a pro, you're like, wow, I really wish I would have either enjoyed this a little bit more or potentially tweaked a little bit of like how you approached or showed up. What would your Mm -hmm. advice be to the girls today in college? I really wouldn't change a thing about how I approached it. I think that, again, kind of having that underdog mentality helped me starting out. So I would say, like, anybody who goes into college in the earlier years feeling like they have something to prove and they want to show that they belong on that level, and I think – being patient really helped me. So I would say just like having that patience and long game mindset, which again, I had in high school, and that really helped me as well. And then I think I did a really good job, especially my freshman year, fostering balance for myself. And going back to our conversation about joy, like that allowed running to continue to feel really joyful to me because it was not my everything. And I 
don't want that to sound bad and that I didn't pour a lot into it, but I really had created a community at school outside of running that I found joy and fulfillment in. And I, you know, enjoyed school and worked hard in school, but at the same time did a good job at like prioritizing sleep and recovery. So I had a good balance of like enjoying things outside of running, but not letting it detract from running. And I think that's a big key too. And then as I went throughout college, I would say I became, you know, a little more and more focused and maybe a little less social outside of running. But I think in those younger years, especially leaning into that balance and finding it is really healthy. And then like, you know, over the years, kind of figuring out what works for you and where your priorities lie, whether it's, you know, becoming more and more serious about running or, you know, finding other passions that I saw a lot of other athletes on the team do and, and knowing that that's okay too. Well, you had a, you got a degree in management science and engineering. So what are your passions outside of sport? Are they still engineering? I think being in Silicon Valley, there's, you know, this big startup culture and there's a fascination around technology and innovation. And we would have different guest speakers coming in from various industries in the Valley. And I always found that really interesting. And I found such an interesting connection between entrepreneurship and sport, especially running in the sense that it's this really long game and this fascination with the long game of having a dream or a vision and then literally putting years and years into it and having that super long-term gratification and, you know, the resilience that has to come with it and, and problem solving. And so, yeah, I think just a fascination with entrepreneurship, given the geographic location, but also the connection to sport. And I did a couple summer internships in college in the venture capital space. And so that's kind of another way I got exposed to startups. And I really liked that too, because it was kind of getting to play a small role in other people's dreams and getting to help them in a small way. And I think having the understanding as an athlete of what it feels like to have a big dream and a vision and then getting to, you know, again, especially as a summer intern, like very small role, but getting to be a tiny part in someone else's dream, knowing what that felt like was really yeah, really fulfilling and really exciting. Well, now you're a big part of our voice and sport community. And my dream is an entrepreneur. So thank you. Yes. yes. <laughs> you, know, you have been an incredible mentor on our platform and a great role model for the girls in the community. So now it all kind of makes sense. I didn't even know that about your background. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to be a part of building something. So it's cool to be a small part. Like you said, it's a, it's the long game, right? It's not easy to be an entrepreneur. Yes. It's definitely different than working at big companies. And I've been where you're now sponsored. I've been at Nike and it's just fundamentally mm -hmm. different, right? Building something from mm -hmm. the bottom up versus like coming in and continuing something. Both great experiences, both very different. But relating back to like 
your sport journey with this too. I think by the end of your, your, I would say your first big dream, right? Attending college at Stanford and running for that team, you had immense success. I mean, you were a 10 time all American. You had the Stanford record for the 5,000 meter and had two runner up finishes in the distance mixed relay. So if you think back, what do you think are the three keys to your success? I think actually things that have already naturally been touched on, I would attribute as the main key, which would be the first playing the long game and having patience. I think if I had been too eager to achieve those things on day one, I would have lost sight of all the small steps that needed to happen in the process and in the interim. And so, you know, part of playing the long game and having patience is, again, something I touched on earlier is the ability to set those smaller bite-sized goals to create that internal reward system for yourself that tells yourself, like, I'm on the right path. I'm doing great. You know, I made this step forward that puts me a little bit better than I was last week, last month, last year, you know, and being able to measure those small steps. So that's all kind of part of the long game and having patience, being able to see the smaller step-by-step process. And then I would say the second thing would be having fun. (laughs) Again, finding that joy is so important. And I think being a part of a team also makes it easier to find that joy and, and the bond of your teammates, especially in college is unlike anything else. I still probably like my closest friends in the entire world are my college teammates. I just got to see some of them over the weekend because one of them is having a baby and it was her baby shower. And there are no other people in the world that make me laugh as hard as they do. And so I think, yeah, just that bond with the teammates is so special and something I'll cherish forever. So really like remembering how special those people are and having fun with them. And that helps obviously bring joy to the process. And then the third thing, another thing I just talked about would be the balance piece and feeling like a whole and complete human outside of your sport, feeling like you're successful outside of your sport and that you're a good teammate and good friend, but you're also, you know, giving your best in school and with whatever you're doing. And that ends up making you feel like, or at least for me, it made me feel more confident and powerful when I stepped on the track. To continue listening to this podcast, please go to voiceandsport.com and sign up for free and join our community. Vanessa goes on to talk about advice that she would give other young women dealing with injuries what I did with the Achilles surgery was making something tangible that I could find joy in every single day with my progress, but also, again, outside of the injury. She also gives us a sneak peek of her Viz injury recovery session on voice and sport. So I actually have shared snippets and screenshot pages of my personal injury journal. And she explains her amazing recovery acronym. I also came up with like a really basic acronym called REST. This week's episode was produced and edited by Viz creator Zoja Bullhawk, a track and cross-country athlete from the University of Houston. 
If you liked our conversation with Vanessa, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. It's super easy to scroll down to the bottom of the page and on Apple Podcasts app and click leave a review. You can follow Vanessa on Instagram at Nessa Fraser. Please send this episode to a friend that you think might enjoy the conversation. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Voice and Sport. And of course, if you're interested in joining our community, sign up for free at voiceandsport.com to get started. When you join Voice and Sport, you gain access to our exclusive content and podcasts, mentorship sessions from professional athletes like Vanessa, and access to the top biz experts in sports psychology and nutrition. If you're interested in advocating for yourself as an athlete, check out episode number 86 with Maddie Price and her agent, Georgia Simmerling. See you next week on the Voice and Sport podcast. Thank you.